please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to continue this evening to look at a passage here on the Lord's Prayer. We're going to take up this evening the second petition. Matthew chapter 6. And let's begin reading in verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom the power and the glory forever. Amen. In the last few weeks, we uh, have learned to approach God as the one who is imminent and near and personal. He is our Father. But we also realize that He is the transcendent and the lofty and the holy God. He is our Father who is in heaven. We then learn that when we pray, we're to always put God's concerns before our own. That is, we should consider God's will and desires before our own will and desires, and that the glory of God is the ultimate purpose and goal of all of life. All other requests must be subordinated, should should be subordinated to this request, hallowed be thy name. Now, God's name cannot be regarded as holy and will not be revered, will not be worshipped, will not be honored where his rule and authority have not been acknowledged and, and are being obeyed. And so we come tonight to the second petition, thy kingdom come. Let's begin by asking the question, what is God's kingdom? Well, in the Old Testament, in the broadest sense, the kingdom of God is God's own sovereign rule over all things, from the greatest of all things to the very least of all things, for the simple fact that He is Creator and He is God. Turn with me to the book of Psalms. I'd like for you to look at a few verses with me. Psalm 45. Now, there are many, many, many statements like this in the Psalms. The Psalms are full of this kind of language. I'm picking out just a few select ones here. But Psalm 45 and verse 6 says this, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. Now we see some words here. We see the word throne. Well, who sits on a throne? And so if God has one, what does that mean? It means that he is, in fact, claiming to be here a great king. We have the word scepter. Scepter is not power itself, but a scepter is the symbol of power. And if a king is conquered and has power no more, what happens to his scepter? It is taken and held by another. It is a symbol of power. We have the word kingdom here. God says that he has a kingdom. And so God is spoken of in these anthropomorphic terms as a king possessing a throne and a scepter and a kingdom. Over in Psalm 47, verse 2 says, For the Lord, 
The Most High is to be feared. He is a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. Then in verse 6, Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with the psalm. Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. And so we, when we begin to ask, what are we really praying for and about when we pray this prayer, thy kingdom come? In the first place, we are acknowledging that God is the great sovereign over all the earth who sits in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. We are confessing that not one atom in this universe is outside of his control. We are saying that with no challenge, with no reservation, with no qualifications, that we know that he is king. Proverbs eight fifteen says, By me kings reign and rulers decree. Now a statement like that means simply this, that God is king of the kings. And God is Lord of the Lords. Now, in the Old Testament, God is not just the great creator king of the whole earth, but he is, in a special sense, the king of Israel, the theocratic kingdom. A kingdom based not on God's creator claim to all things, but a kingdom that is based on covenant and on special relationship. The expectation of this kingdom was that God would save and preserve his people that are in his kingdom, and he would judge and destroy their enemies. Turn with me just a few pages more in Psalm. Here to Psalm 110. We could read from Psalm 2, why did the nations raise in their uh, rage, and there it talks about how that... The anointed one of God that, that he places on the throne will rule all things. Similar language here in one ten verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies my footstool. In Genesis 17.6, when God is speaking to Abraham, he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And God's covenant and redemptive plan with Abraham included his plan to establish a kingdom. In Exodus 19.6, over 400 years later, in dealing with Israel in the Exodus event, God says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He says that to the people of Israel. Later on in redemptive history, Saul and David bring this purpose to some level of fulfillment. But even at the height of that kingdom, they are pointed to a Messiah and a king yet to come. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. We read this oftentimes at Christmas time. But we should think about it in terms that's not just a part of our happy you know, Christmas story. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For to us... A child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. 
And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so we see here that there is going to be one yet anticipated, yet looked for, that is going to come and that is going to really do what David uh, could only do in shadow and could only do partially, but one who really will rule and establish government and God's rule in the earth. And so when we come to the New Testament, we have these two kingdom ideas in the background. Note that in the New Testament, the focus is not on a place or on a land or a geographically defined entity. The focus is not on a people or a race or a cultural or ethnic group. Instead, the kingdom, as we come to the New Testament, is identified with a person, the king himself. The king makes the kingdom. Wherever the king is, there the kingdom is. Wherever the king has influence, the kingdom is there. And to whatever degree the king is at work and present, the kingdom of God has come. When John the Baptist and Jesus come preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 3, 2, Matthew 4, 17. They are speaking of something for which pious Jews had been waiting for many centuries. When Jesus tra- begins to travel from place to place, place preaching the, the gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 4.23, Matthew 9.35, that language is used. He is bringing the good news that the days of God's reign, about which Isaiah and the prophets spoke in past times, is here now. So when Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount, our text that we're looking at now in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, teaches his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is Old Testament background to this concept and to this message. The kingdom of God was something the Jews were expecting. Though their understanding of it and their expectations for what it would be like are incorrect. During the time of Jesus, Jews even concluded their synagogue services with a prayer called the Kaddish, which is very similar to our Lord's Prayer. Listen to what they prayed. Exalted and hallowed be his great name in the world, which he created according to his will. May he let his kingdom rule in your lifetime and in your days and in the lifetime of the whole house of Israel speedily and soon. Praise be his great name from eternity to eternity. And to this say, Amen. So that was a prayer that was used in the synagogue. So you can see that there is kingdom expectations among the righteous there in the land of Israel. What they did not yet grasp was that the king himself is the creator God. That was that one element of the Old Testament teaching of the kingdom. And they did not grasp that the king is in his person, the covenant, and the guarantee of it. The other kingdom aspect from the Old Testament. 
that the king himself is those two things, the great creator God who, to whom all things belong. And he himself is the covenant and the guarantee of the covenant. They did not understand that the kingdom of this king was not to be just around them in society and in the nation and in the world, but it was to be in them in their heart of hearts. But our Lord is clear about the nature of his kingdom. John eighteen thirty six, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. And in Luke chapter 7, when John the Baptist, apparently not completely clear in his understanding of the nature of the kingdom and having questions and maybe having doubts as he sits there in prison, he sends his disciples to Jesus. And in Luke chapter 7, at the end of verse 18, beginning at the end of verse 18, it says this, And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. His answer was the kingdom is not politics, it's not economics, it's not brute force, it is the king saving And blessing his people. And wherever the king is at work. Wherever he is doing his mighty deeds. The kingdom of God is there. Now if you look at Matthew's gospel. There are some very interesting statements about the kingdom of God. Matthew 3, 2 says. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Future but near. Imminent. Right at hand. In Matthew 12, 28 we read. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That is, that it is already present. Then in our prayer, we're praying, your kingdom come. That's what we read here in our text in Matthew chapter 6. We're told in this model for Christian prayer to the end of the world to pray for the kingdom to come in ways that it has not come yet. This prayer anticipates yet future things. And so we see here a principle that helps us understand many things about Bible doctrine and the Christian life. It is the, it is the idea of the already and the not yet. And that certainly applies to how we understand the kingdom of God as it has come in our Lord Jesus Christ. Many aspects of our faith and hope are present realities. They are finished. They are completed things. Christ has been sacrificed and has been raised from the dead and has entered heaven to intercede for us. This is already. The Holy Spirit has been given with great power to the church. That is already. Christ is king in our hearts now if we are true Christians. That is already. 
The scriptures say if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Or it's, that's Romans 10, 9. Or it says no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians twelve three. These are already things. But Christ continues to expand his kingdom in our hearts through sanctification. And we continue to grow in Christian maturity and grace and character through the work of the Holy Spirit. These are things of the kingdom that are coming. They are now, but they are also later. And they exist today, but they are getting greater and they are changing as we become more and more like the, like the Lord Jesus Christ. They are already, but they are not yet. For the New Testament writers, the coming of the kingdom or the reign of God does not occur at a single moment in time. Instead, the coming of the kingdom involves a series of events that occur over a period of time. When Jesus declares that the kingdom of God has come and yet that it is coming, he is saying that the prophesied last great events of redemption have begun and that those things are yet are not yet reached in their final conclusion. That they're here now. They have started. We're not waiting any longer for these things to become realities. And yet they haven't come to their great conclusion yet. Jesus is saying that we now in the midst are in the midst of the last great period of redemptive history. The kingdom has come. And it is yet coming. We are the ones on whom the end of the ages has come. 1 Corinthians 10:11 The kingdom has already come with the coming of Jesus. He has already been given authority in heaven and in earth. The kingdom of God is present in the person of the king. We should never think that at some future time Jesus is going to become king. That we are waiting for him to come back to set up his kingdom. That would be terribly wrong to think in that way. The scriptures are absolutely clear about this. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, Acts chapter 2, verse 36. The kingdom is fully inaugurated by the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord. And it was confirmed to be so by the giving of the Holy Spirit to the church at Pentecost. And where is King Jesus right now? He is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He has taken his place on his throne. Hebrews 8.1 and a number of other verses in the New Testament. And we need to realize that in a special way, in the already, the kingdom of God is here, is here and present in our midst, wherever the body of Christ, his church, is found. The scriptures say if two or three are gathered together, what? That Christ is here in the midst of them. Matthew thirteen forty four says this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. Why does he do that? Well, it is so that he can have the kingdom now, so that he can possess the kingdom now. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us, past tense, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That is already. 
Why then do we pray your kingdom come? Because we are praying for, in the first place, the not yet parts. Certain aspects of the kingdom are yet future. We don't possess everything connected with the kingdom yet. But we also, when we pray this prayer, your kingdom come, we're also praying for the right now, already parts, as we live in them day by day and moment by moment. There are parts of the kingdom of God that are the already, they're the right now things. But that's what we live in every day, and that's what we pray for as we go to the Lord in prayer for our present needs in this world. We pray because here on earth, there are still those who do not submit to his rule. So when we pray, your kingdom come, we're praying for the continued extension of God's reign on earth. We're praying for God to convert the hearts of his enemies and bring them to confess that Jesus is Lord. We are praying that he put all those who refuse to believe and submit to be placed under his feet. We are praying for the day when all evil, all sin, all rebellion against God and his Christ will finally end. We are praying that God's rule in Christ will both advance and be consummated. We are praying for his kingdom to expand and to extend. We are praying for his kingdom to expand and extend in our own hearts, in our families, in our church. We are praying that people will be saved and that the enemies of Christ will fail in all that they do. We are praying that the king will return and actually be here in the kingdom coming to its full consummation. I want to read to you. I read last time when we were looking at the first petition from the Westminster Larger Catechism. I want to read, read you what it says again here on this second question. This is the Westminster, Westminster Larger Catechism, question 191. What do we pray for in the second petition? Answer. In the second petition, which is, Thy kingdom come. Acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan, we pray that the kingdom of, of sin and Satan may be destroyed. The gospel propagated throughout the world. The Jews call. The fullness of the Gentiles be brought in. The church furnished with all gospel officers and ordinances, purged from corruption countenance and maintained by the civil magistrate, that the ordinances of Christ be purely dispensed and made effectual to the converting of those that are yet in their sins, and the confirming, comforting, and building up of those who are already converted, that Christ would rule in our hearts here and hasten the time of his second coming and our reigning with him forever. And that he would be pleased so to exercise the kingdom of his power in all the world as may best conduce to these ends. To which we, I say, amen. Excellent statement of what we mean by thy kingdom come. Thomas Watson wrote a book on thy kingdom come. If you've never read it, you should. It uh, is a wonderful uh, thing. Uh, and I suggest that you can download it off the internet. I suggest that you get it and read it if you're not familiar with it. Let me give you a quotation from Thomas Watson. What kingdom then is meant when we say, Thy kingdom come? Positively, a twofold kingdom is meant. 
Number one, the kingdom of grace, which God exercises in the consciences of his people. This is God's lesser kingdom. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we pray that the kingdom of grace may be set up in our hearts and increased. Number two, we pray also that the kingdom of glory may hasten. And that we may in God's good time be translated into it. These two kingdoms of grace and glory differ not specifically, but gradually. They differ not in nature, but in degree only. The kingdom of grace is nothing but the beginning of the kingdom of glory. The kingdom of grace is glory in the seed, and the kingdom of glory is grace in the flower. The kingdom of grace is glory in the daybreak, and the kingdom of glory is grace in the full meridian, or we would say at high noon. The kingdom of grace is glory militant, and the kingdom of glory is grace triumphant. There is such an inseparable connection between these two kingdoms, grace and glory, that there is no passing into the one but by the other. So the kingdoms of grace and glory are so closely joined together that we cannot go into the kingdom of glory, but through the kingdom of grace. Many people aspire after the kingdom of glory, but never look after grace. But these two, which God has joined together, may not be put asunder. And so when we pray, thy kingdom come, we are saying to our Father, rule in my whole life, inward and outward, spiritual and physical, right now with grace, and rule over me and be my king until I am safe in glory. Thy kingdom come.